Amen. Thank you, Jake and Emily. Appreciate your leadership with our music ministry. That was a wonderful song. I love the words to that song. I was introduced to that song several years ago in our home builders class as I was teaching our song leader. He had uh, found that song and introduced that to us, and I was happy to see that in our hymnal and was uh, glad to uh, be able to uh, fit that. Uh, I thought it was fitting, at least for our, our service today, and uh, what a, what a uh, wonderful hymn that is that our homes would uplift and glorify the Lord. John chapter number 7, John chapter number 7, and uh, we are looking at this passage as we have continued through our study in the Gospel of John. And we have seen already in John 7, as we introduced last week, Jesus is now at the Feast of the Tabernacles. He has left the northern regions of Israel, Galilee, where he was at Capernaum, and he has now come down for this Feast of the Tabernacles. This feast is a feast that has requirements for all the male Jews to come and to be in Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. This feast is to celebrate the, the, the harvest of the grapes and the olives. And it is around September or October of our calendar. And so as we look ahead into the fall, you may have a calendar at home. It may pop up on your electronic calendar, uh, this Feast of the Tabernacles, and it will probably be somewhere in September or October. And again, it's one of the primary feasts. And so there were a lot of people in Jerusalem. And it had been some time since Jesus had been in Jerusalem, since he had been up north ministering there in Galilee in Capernaum. But now he is preparing to go to Jerusalem for this Feast of Tabernacles. As we looked at last week, his brethren, his brothers, half-brothers, because we know Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, they were encouraging Jesus to go down to Jerusalem, to go to the feast. And in verse 4 we read, For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. There seems to be an encouragement from his brothers, from his half-brothers, to go down in, in popularity, to go down to be seen of men, to go down and, and, and to make his name known. Uh, to kind of walk through the streets of Jerusalem, almost like a triumphal entry of sorts, uh, to, to, to make himself uh, seen by the people, uh, almost as if he would be some sort of celebrity or, or superstar, or to go down as some, some emperor or some political ruler. It's almost as if his brethren are, are trying to, to push him uh, to, to be this uh, popular person. Instead of going according to God's will, instead of going in humility, and going in the grace of God, it's almost as if his brethren are, are trying to, to get Jesus to, to get outside of God's will and to go according to God's plan. Uh, there, there could be, I don't want to again read too much into the passage, but we know in verse 5 that his brethren at this time did not believe in Jesus. They did not know him as uh, their, their savior. They had not trusted Christ. They just saw him as their, their half-brother who they grew up with. And again, he was the perfect child. Not that Jesus was some goody-goody two-shoes or the teacher's pet. Uh, sometimes the, the, the kids who don't get in trouble at school are kind of known that way. It's not that Jesus was uh, pompous or, or proud or, or, or any kind of uh, looking down at, at his brethren in some sort of condescending or proud way. It wasn't like that at all. It's just that Jesus was, of course, the, the, the perfect child. I'm sure there was some resentment uh, from his brethren. 
So maybe their motive was to, 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 to have Jesus go down there so he could get in trouble with the religious leaders, the, the Jews, that group that has now been identified as the ones who are in opposition, opposition to Jesus. We know that there was a group, these Jews, who sought to kill him. Verse number one, because the Jews sought to kill him, we read there. So maybe his brethren were even hoping that Jesus would, would get in trouble and there would be some opposition and it would, it would stir up uh, some, uh, some sort of resistance to Jesus. I don't know exactly what all their motives were, but it, it does not appear that his, his brothers were, were motivated in a, in a good way or trying to, to help Jesus to follow the will of God. But Jesus answered them in verse 6, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast, I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. He's saying, I'm going to go to the feast in the will of God, according to God's time, according to God's plan, and the way that God would have me to go. He's not deterred by his brethren. He's, he's not uh, going to get caught up in the popularity or, or, or to go, uh, to hesitate to go just out of fear of the Jews and then the desire to kill him. Though there was obviously that uh, threat, there was obviously the, the, the fact that there was going to probably be persecution when he went. He knew that was going to come, he knew there was going to be opposition. Uh, there were some who were questioning who he was. There was some debate. We read down there, uh, as we looked at even last week, and uh, there were some who were saying he was a good man in verse 12, others saying he's a deceiver. And we see some of that even still in our culture today. But the point is that Jesus, no matter if there was going to be persecution or if there was going to be popularity, Jesus was going to follow God's will. Jesus was going to do his Father's will. He was going to follow God's redemption plan. He was going to be obedient in every detail of his life. And we need to have that same desire. We need to have that same motive. And we get down to verse 14. Now about the midst of the feast. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why, ye, why go ye about to kill me? Verse 20, the people answered and said, Thou hast a devil. Who goeth about to kill thee? So we see, first of all, this morning, Christ's credibility is questioned. Christ's credibility is questioned. He goes down to the feast about the middle of the week. The feast is a, is a seven-day feast. So we're talking about the middle of, of that week of, of the feast. So probably three, maybe four days into the feast. He goes down to Jerusalem, and he goes down secretly. He does not go down openly. We see in verse number 10, not openly, but as it were in secret. And where does he go? He goes into the temple. Now remember Jesus, when he was 12 years of age, had taught in the temple. He had been down for a feast. And he sat there, and the religious leaders were in awe of him at the age of 12. How he taught with authority and with such knowledge. It was not uncommon for the rabbis to go into the temple and to teach. And 
during these feast days. That would be one of the things that they would do is the people would gather and they would hear from the rabbis. But there was something that set Jesus apart from the rest of the rabbis. There was something about Jesus' teaching, his knowledge, his authority, the way he conducted himself, his handling of the scripture. They, they were marveling, verse 15 says. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? This word marvel is the word amazed or astonished. They were astonished at his ability to handle the scriptures, to be able to teach with such authority, to have such knowledge. They, they referred to letters. This, how knoweth this man letters? How does he have this knowledge? How does he have this learning? And the, the, the question is because they knew Jesus had not gone to the rabbi schools. He had not gone to the University of Jerusalem. He had not gone to whatever the rabbinical school of that day. He had not sat under the feet of some elite rabbi. Because that would have been the norm. For you to get credentials, you had to go to the rabbi schools. You had to sit under the great rabbis and sit at their feet and, and learn from them. They, they had their traditions. They had their uh, man-made commandments, the commandments of men that Jesus would rebuke, that they had added to the law of Moses. Sadly, much of the rabbinical teaching was just hot air for the rabbis to show off their knowledge. It was, it was not to help the people really understand the scriptures and to be drawn to the Lord and to look for the Messiah and to, to be saved. Sadly, a lot of the rabbinical teaching had just become an opportunity for them to show off their knowledge and their wisdom and their learning. And they heaped onto the, the doctrines of, of the, the word of God. They heaped on to those, the commandments of men. And many of the rabbis, the religious leaders, were, were hypocritical in their lives. And we're not good examples behind the scenes. Here's Jesus, though. He's teaching in the temple. They were surprised by his knowledge of the scriptures, his ability to handle the Old Testament text, having received no formal education, not having sat under one of the great rabbis. They were perplexed by his mastery of the Old Testament scriptures when he had not attended any rabbinical school. And he taught with authority. There was something unique, there was something distinct about Christ's teaching. They knew that the quality of his teaching was far superior to anyone else they had ever heard. But they just couldn't bring themselves to accept the fact that his authority came from God himself. That he was the God-man. Their focus was on the exterior. They were, they were focused on the education and the, the schooling. They, they were focused on their power structures, their traditions. In order for you to be credentialed in rabbi teaching, you must follow this path. You must have this person teach you. You must, in a sense, have this license. You must earn these credentials from the school of rabbinical thought in order for you to have authority. I know I mentioned from time to time uh, one of my favorite films, uh, the film Sheffy, and uh, if you've ever seen it, you know there's a scene where Brother Sheffy is approached by one of the denominational leaders, and they are now ready, after they had 
not accepted him before, early on in his preaching days. He was not preaching according to their customs, so they would not license him. And now, years later, he has quite a following. He's preached many years now, and there's these camp meetings going on, and they're bringing people. I mean, back in those days, it was not unusual for people to come every evening to hear uh, the Word of God to be preached and taught. Uh, now, now people can, can barely come once a week, but they would spend their they would spend their evenings, many many summers, and sometimes for weeks on end. These camp meetings would go on, and they would go every night, and they would hear preaching, and there'd be people saved. And Brother Sheffy was a part of this. And after one of the camp meetings, one of the denominational leaders came up to him and wanted to make him a candidate for for licensing by this denomination. I love Brother Brother Sheffy's answer. And he called them out for their compromise. He called them out for their doctrinal error. He called them out for their pride and their hypocrisy. And he he would have none of their credentialing. He would have none of their licensing. He was going to remain faithful to preach the word of God, whether he had their stamp of approval or not. Jesus Christ walked into that temple that day and he preached with authority. He taught with authority. He wasn't worried about being credentialed by the rabbis and by their rabbinical schools. He wasn't worried about some teaching license from the schools of the rabbi learning. He came with a heart for the lost, with a compassion for lost souls. He came to that temple and he taught and he preached the word of God and he preached and he taught with authority from God. And it was like something they had never heard before. It was unique. It was superior to anything that they had heard from any rabbi. And it frustrated the Jewish leaders. It frustrated this group of Jews who are identified here by John as the Jews. They, they, they did not like the fact that Christ did not follow all their traditions and go up through their rabbinical schools and sit at their, their feet. They marveled and they asked the question, how knoweth this man letters having never learned? His credentials, his credibility, excuse me, was being questioned. But how did Jesus answer? How did Jesus answer? We see there in verse 16, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. What is Jesus saying? He says, the the, the reason I speak with this authority, the reason I speak and I teach with such knowledge and with, with such understanding is because this teaching, this doctrine is God's. I am bringing the doctrine of the Heavenly Father, the doctrine of God. My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. This verse is not saying that we find God's will by willing to try God's way. And if it works, then we'll stick with it. If it doesn't work, then we'll go on and we'll try something else. That's not what Jesus is saying. This is not a try Jesus philosophy. This is rather a willingness to submit to the will of God in salvation and in walking the Christian walk. This is a call to submit to God's way. If they would submit 
to Christ, confess their sins, repent of their sins, and turn to Christ in saving faith, they would experience the glory of God in their souls and in their lives. They would know, they would receive the things of God. We read in Corinthians that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. It's similar to what Jesus is saying right here. He's saying you don't understand, you can't comprehend, you don't get it because you're not willing to leave your sin. You're not willing to turn your back on all the traditions and the man-made rules and laws in your works righteousness. You're not willing to confess your hypocrisy and your pride. You don't know the word of God. You don't understand the teaching. You don't recognize God's doctrine because your heart is stubborn and full of pride. G. Campbell Morgan, the great preacher, put it this way, when men are wholly, completely consecrated to the will of God and want to do that above everything else, then they find out that Christ's teaching is divine, that it is the teaching of God. And many of us sitting here today say that very thing is true. That it's been worth it all to follow Jesus. It's been the best life. I would not go back and do it any other way. I'm glad God saved me. I'm glad I turned to Christ. I'm glad that I am a follower of Jesus. I've not been perfect at it. I've not always kept up like I should. I've had to confess my sins along the way. I've had to get right with God along the way. But I'm thankful that I have been saved and that I am serving Jesus. And I want to serve Him more. I want to serve Him better. And I'm so glad that I turned to Christ. And I don't regret ever having been saved. Many of you have that testimony. You are a testimony. You are a living proof of obeying the word of God, the command to repent, and living a life of obedience, and seeing the will of God fulfilled and meted out in your life. And you'll hear me say it on a regular basis, that the Christian life is the best life. The obedient Christian life. The Christian life lived in the will of God. It is the best life. Don't believe all the nonsense of the world. That if you go out and you party it up. And you booze it up. And you shoot it up. And you live it up. That that's how you're going to really be fulfilled. Don't buy into that. Believe what Jesus says. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. I've told young people through the years, even adults, you will prove, you will prove God's word is true, either by your obedience or by your disobedience. God's word will remain true. You can choose to obey it or you can choose to disobey it. You will prove the truth of the word of God either way. I hope that each and every one of us are dedicated today to doing the will of God, to remaining faithful and obedient. If there's someone here who does not know Christ as their Savior, and some of this Christianity stuff, some of this Bible stuff is a mystery to you, and it's frustrating to you, and it's confusing to you, it may be that God right now in this service is speaking to your heart, convicting you of your sin, that you might put your faith and trust in Him, and then it will begin to make sense. It will begin to really come together because you'll be a child of God. 
And you'll be able to spiritually discern the things of God because you're born again. And that's Jesus' appeal even to these religious leaders, to these people here at the temple. Verse 18, He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory. What, what does the world do? The world is about its own glory. The world today has all kinds of awards and concerts and ceremonies and on and on we could go. There's the Grammys and there's the Oscars and there's the ESPYs and the, I don't know, all the different, I can't even keep track of them all. And they have their charts and they have their platinums and their golds and they have, I don't know, all the trophies. And nowadays, they even give out awards for some of the most perverse and sinful activities and lifestyles and movies and music and on and on it goes. They celebrate their sin without any shame and give each other awards and trophies for it. And they make all the headlines and it disgusts me sometimes when Christians, I've, I've seen it and heard it for, for so long. Did you watch the Oscars last night? Did you watch the Grammys? Did you see what she was wearing? That was the best movie. And I'm not saying that we can't ever watch a movie. I'm not saying that we can't ever watch one of those award shows. But more times than not, it's just a bunch of perverts patting each other on the back. And they sometimes get up and they get their awards and they get their trophies and they cuss our God. And they say blasphemous things about our Savior. And about our beliefs. And then we walk around like we want to be one of them. And we hold them up as heroes. Shame on us. Christ has called us to a different life. To the best life. The life lived in obedience to the word of God. And fulfillment of God's will. And Jesus goes even further in verse 19. And he deals with their authority problem. Once again, did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go ye about to kill me? He goes right to their motive. He deals with the fact that there are some in that group that are ready to take him out and to kill him. If they could get their hands on him, they would, right then and there. And he speaks to Moses. He says, you claim Moses as your authority. You refer to Moses as the one who gave you the manna, as the one who gave you the law. But do you really obey the law of Moses? You think about it. They had not obeyed the law of Moses perfectly. They had exalted their man-made traditions above God who gave them the law. They were in violation of having no other gods before the one true God. They had exalted themselves and their man-made laws and their works righteousness. That was all exalted above God and above His Word. They were hypocrites. They were in violation of the law of Moses. And in their hearts, they were guilty of murder. Hate toward the very Son of God. Their hearts were far from God. They were even at the Feast of the Tabernacles, worshiping God, worshiping God in the temple. Yet their hearts were far from Him. Jesus would even make reference in verses 19 and 20, and even back in verse 7, He even makes reference to the fact that they hated Him so much. 
as an evidence that he was from God. The world gives glory to itself. The world gives glory to its heroes that it produces. One of the testimonies, one of the proofs that Jesus was from God is the world hated him. And that's hard for us, I realize, to grasp because we want popularity, we want acceptance. There's a human need for approval. But we have to set that aside, don't we? In order to have God's approval. And many times we know who is faithful and who is serving God and obedient to Him by the persecution that comes. Not that we seek out persecution, not that we look for it, and not that we go out in some false martyrdom, but one of the ways that it was proved that Jesus was from God is the fact that the world hated Him so much. He even made reference to that in verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. One of the reasons that believers, so-called Christians, compromise is because they're afraid of the world's hate. They're afraid of the world's disapproval. Jesus stayed faithful to the will of God. He preached the truth. He took on even the religious rulers, those who were opposed to him, knowing it was going to bring persecution, knowing it was eventually going to cost him his life to be the sacrifice for our sins. He was undeterred by the hatred, by the persecution, by the animosity. And we're in that day now, here in America. We never thought we would be there. But just even holding to the truth of two genders, of two sexes, male and female, is now going to bring reproach on our name. I remember as a, as a young father, just in the early days of raising our kids and spanking our children, and some who would say that's cruel and unusual punishment, that's abuse, that's baloney. If they don't feel that sting on their behind that sends nerve endings to their brain that then reaches their heart, then they're going to be rebels. And I want it to be that way. We face all kinds of opposition from the unsaved world to change our views, to change our doctrine, to do things differently. And many times Christians will compromise just because they want the world's approval. They want to keep the money coming. They want to keep the affirmations coming. They want to keep the awards coming. There were Christians who would compromise with the unsaved world and give credence to false doctrine, false teaching, and to worldly practices because they wanted to be called scholars by the intellectual, unsaved, religious liberals. And they were willing to compromise on doctrine, willing to compromise on biblical practices because they wanted the approval of the intellectual elite. They wanted to be called scholars. Even some of those so-called Christians who are now being called scholars by the unsaved, intellectual, religious liberals, they would then turn around and call those religious liberals Christians instead of calling them out for who they were. Jesus wouldn't do that. He was exposing their hypocrisy. They questioned his credibility. But then in verses 21 through 24, we see Christ confounds the questioners. Christ confounds the questioners. He rebukes them for the hypocrisy. He takes them back to Moses. He says in verse 21, I have done one work and ye all marvel. 
He's referring to the healing of the paralytic, the lame man. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. To them he had violated the Sabbath by healing that paralytic man on the Sabbath day. But what made them even angrier was that Christ was willing to expose their sin of hypocrisy and hatred in their religious lies. He refers to Moses, who they revered, who they claimed to obey so faithfully. Yet they would violate the Sabbath in order to practice circumcision, which was commanded by the law. That's what he was just referring to. The law required a male child to be circumcised the eighth day, regardless of whether the eighth day was a Sabbath or not. And Jesus is saying to them, if purifying one part of the body is okay on the Sabbath, then would not the healing of the entire body, healing the lame man, would that not be okay? You violate the law of Moses to practice circumcision on the eighth day, if that day is Sabbath, you still obey the law. I heal a lame man entirely, not just one part of him, but I heal him entirely, and you're accusing me of violating the Sabbath? Of breaking the Sabbath? When you do the same thing to follow the law of circumcision. As a matter of fact, in verse 22, Jesus makes reference to the fact that circumcision was already practiced before Moses ever wrote it into the law. And the keeping of the Sabbath was in practice before Moses put it in the law. So both circumcision and Sabbath keeping were instituted before Moses. And therefore, they had a God-ordained purpose even before the law was given. And that purpose was important to keep in mind. But it was lost to the religious leaders who were about power and control and having the people follow them instead of follow Christ and follow God's word. Unfortunately, circumcision, Sabbath keeping, had been added or added to as part of their strict man-made religious system that enslaved the people and fed their self-righteousness. The fact that Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day was no different from them practicing circumcision on the Sabbath day, yet they were condemning Jesus. Their condemnation was hypocritical. And what Jesus did was actually better, but they would not see it that way. Christ confounds the questioners. He puts it back on them. They are hypocritical. They're double, they have a double standard. And they are rejecting God's standard. And then he brings it to a close in this part of the conversation in verse 24. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Thirdly, this morning we see that Christ commands the condemners. We've seen, first of all, that Christ's credibility is questioned. We see then that Christ confounds the questioners. And then finally, 
we see Christ commands the condemners. Judge righteous judgment. We don't hear this verse quoted nearly as often as we hear Matthew 7 and verse number 1. Judge not. Judge not that you be not judged. People throw judge not all around, all the time. It's like the ammunition in their pocket to use against any Christian, any so-called Bible believer, Bible thumper, whatever they want to call us. Judge not. Tolerance is the theme of the day. Tolerance of anything and everything, it seems, except for a true biblical teaching. Just the statement of, the, the old statement about tolerance, they're, they're hypocritical in that because they're not 100% tolerant of everything like they say they are. But Jesus is summarizing the whole argument with this final principle here in verse 24. The law of necessity, the law of mercy is of higher value. The purity of the male child in its symbolism of separation from sin and separation from ungodliness. The, 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 the physical act of circumcision was symbolic of the removal of sin, the removal of corruption. It was symbolic of the removal of that which corrupts and that which diseases. It had a great symbolism. Of how Christ will purify us when we get saved and removes the disease of sin and removes the, the corruption of sin when we get saved. That symbol was important. So the purity, yes, the physical health of that male child was important. It's symbolism of separation from ungodliness and sin. That is more important than just the command to keep the Sabbath. And the healing of the crippled man is the same. The Sabbath was for man. God is, Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. The healing of that lame man and the spiritual lesson in it is far more important than that simple keeping of the Sabbath. Christ was not violating any law of God in healing that crippled man, that paralytic on the Sabbath day. He was keeping the higher law of God and doing good in making that man whole and bringing that man to himself. We're not sure if that man ever truly trusted Christ as his Savior, but he was very close to at least. So what appeared to be a violation of the law actually isn't when you consider the weightier matters of the law. We are told in, I believe it's Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, that we're to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. In that passage, there's all this religious doing, sacrifices, and all the keeping of the law. And in that great prophetic book, a minor prophet, the preaching is to the sins of the land of Judah, of Israel, keeping all of the externals of religion, yet their heart was far from God, and he was calling them to repentance, and he is saying, it is better to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with thy God. God is after the heart. God wants our heart to be contrite, our heart to be broken, our heart to be humble, our heart to be submitted to him in obedience, and not just go through the externals and the outside. And when he says judge righteous judgment, it's a call to salvation, to getting beyond the externals, to seeing the corruption of their own heart, to see the true message that Jesus is giving, 
But it's also a reminder to us as believers of the necessity of exercising moral and spiritual discernment. We are to judge righteous judgment. God expects and commands this of his people. Matthew 7, 1, judge not, be not judged. I'll preach a, a message. I have a whole message just on that one passage that I'll preach another time. I don't think you want to be here till 1 o'clock. I don't have my notes with me anyway. But Matthew 7 and verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. That's referring to harsh, hypocritical condemnation that God forbids. But judging righteous judgment has to do with moral and spiritual discernment of evaluating things by God's standard. Those religious people who are opposed to Christ, they were judging by their standard. They had set themselves up in their pride. They had set up their man-made rules. They had set up themselves and their power. And that had become the standard. And that's a danger for us in our humanity and our pride to make ourselves the standard. To expect everybody to follow our standard when we should be pointing people to God's standard, to God's word. Not that we can't have standards, not that we can't have rules. We have to. Chandler just got two red shirts from Payless because they have a dress code at Payless. A dress code? How dare they have a dress code? I, I, I go everywhere and there's rules. There are standards. Your workplace has some sort of standard. You go to an amusement park, you go to any place of recreation or of employment and there's rules. Walking through the locker room and at Lucas Oil Stadium, going on a tour of the Colts Stadium, I walked through the locker room and there were a list of rules on the wall for the football players. Million dollar football players that have to follow rules. You walk into Tippy Canoe Mall and there's probably a sign right there and it's got a long list of rules. We have to have standards. But what these people are doing is setting themselves up as the standard. Ignoring God's standard, ignoring God's law and evaluating by their standard and condemning Jesus in the process instead of submitting themselves to God's standard. Judging righteous judgment means that we are evaluating all things by God's standard. We're holding up every decision, everything that we do and say, watch, and everything, and we are filtering it through God's filter. Measuring it up to God's standard. That's what we have to do as believers. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 22 says, Abstain from all appearance of evil. Literally, that verse is saying, every time evil manifests itself, every time evil makes an appearance, we recognize it for what, is, what it is, and we avoid it. That's judging righteous judgment. Evaluating everything according to God's standard. Again, ultimately, it was a command for them to repent, to submit themselves to God's standard, to trust Christ as their Savior. But they would not receive the things of God. They remained stubbornly resistant to his call to repent. We as believers, are we judging righteous judgment? Are we exercising good spiritual discernment? Are we living our lives evaluating things by the word of God? Or are we just going wholesale with what the world says and what the world does 
in evaluating ourselves by the world standards instead of by God's standards. We see today, once again, Christ's credibility is questioned. We see he confounds the questioners and then he commands the condemners. May we be righteously evaluating this world as we live obedient lives using good moral spiritual biblical discernment and be judging righteous judgment as we live this life for the lord let's pray lord we thank you for your word thank you for our fathers lord as fathers we are called as leaders in our homes to have to exercise righteous judgment it's hard sometimes, Lord. We need you. We need your help. We need your wisdom. We need your strength. May, Lord, we help our children, help our wives, even in our workplaces and the places that we go. May, Lord, we evaluate all things by your standard, the standard of your word, and judge righteous judgment. Help us to be in the center of your will, fulfilling your will for our lives and living for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can stand and if you'll take in your hymnals, we'll turn to 731. We sing a stanza of this hymn just a few moments ago. 731, oh, give us homes. Jake is going to come and lead us in uh, the first stanza of 731. Uh, we sing to the the, uh, the tune of, be, I think it's Be Still My Soul. We'll sing this stanza. May this be a, a song of dedication. And if God is working in your heart, you can do business with the Lord, even as we sing. If we can help you in any way afterward, we'd be happy to do so. But let's uh, sing as Jake comes and leads us in 731, Oh, Give Us Homes. <laughs> 